Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. I do appreciate it. I also appreciate all of my patrons like Lisa and Robbie and Janet and Ron, Jocelyn and Lisa, another Lisa, and Sam and Richard and Green, Peggy, Teresa, Yuri, Ashley. Thanks so much for all the support. I couldn't do it without you. Uh, if you would like to be a patron of the program, get exclusive content, go to the PeteCallenderShow.com or click on the description and you will find all of the necessary links. So the governor of North Carolina says we are all going to be staying at home for longer. Businesses that are not open now, you will not be able to reopen uh probably ever again, but at least until September 11th. Uh, that's the latest executive order the governor mandated uh, at his press conference. Uh, everybody stays at home, safer at home, uh, for another five weeks. Speaking of homes, if you are looking to buy or sell a home, call the only agent that I would call. That's Rowena Patton, 333-4483. Mountainhomehunt.com is the website. Um, she and her agents outsell 99% of the realtors in North Carolina. She's the only agent that I would trust to buy or sell a home. So you should too. Call her up, 333-4483. Mountainhomehunt.com. Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Call them. And then start packing. So uh, Governor Cooper makes this constant assertion that uh, his plan is the right plan. The way he's been doing it has been the right way to do it. And as proof, look at all of the other states that had to go backwards. Look at all the other states that didn't do the great, awesome job that Roy Cooper has done, he says. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. As I said last week, stable is good, but decreasing is better. And while we are seeing stabilization of our numbers, that doesn't mean we can let up. Just to point out here, uh, stabilization is good, but we want to see a decrease in the numbers. You're never going to have a decrease in the case count. And that's literally the first number he always starts the press conferences with. We know this stability is fragile, and these trends can change quickly if we let down our guards. You only have to look at hospitals in other states that have been overwhelmed when reopening occurred too fast. In North Carolina, we've used the dimmer switch approach to easing restrictions. This ensured that we did not open too much, too quickly, which health experts say can lead to a devastating increase in cases, sickness, and death. He does not say which health experts. He just says it like, oh, health experts say that I'm right. My decisions have been perfect. Um, he, and he constantly citing other states' experiences as proof that his plan works, Right. And then he makes this announcement um, that basically a lot of businesses, you're going to have to go bankrupt, go out of business because the colleges have to make tuition money. I mean, he doesn't make it. Okay, he doesn't make that explicit argument. But listen to what he says here. With the hustle and bustle of opening schools, people will move around more. And so will the virus. Other states that lifted restrictions quickly have had to go backward as their hospital capacity ran dangerously low and their cases jumped higher. 
we'll get into the hospital capacity issue, this myth uh, in a in a bit. Um, but also, I just want to point out that if you never move forward, like North Carolina has really never moved forward for now, what, months? Um, it's kind of hard to have to go backwards if you've never moved forward, right? So he's he's pointing at all these states saying, oh, look, they had to come back to where we are. Well, they came back to where we are because they went ahead and opened up more. And we haven't. And so, yes, they came back to our position, but they also had a period of time when they had more freedom and more economic activity, right? People could open up and not everybody got sick, right? So, yes, if you're going to hold up a standard like, well, we never have to move backwards. Well, if you never move, then yes, you never have to move backwards. That's obvious. I don't Anyway, we will not make that mistake in North Carolina. Good to know. Not moving forward. Keeping with our Demis switch approach with school openings... And in order to push for decreasing numbers, which will keep people healthier and boost our economy, North Carolina will remain paused in Safer at Home Phase 2 for five weeks. Experts believe our mandatory mask order stabilized our numbers. Doesn't tell us which experts those are. Doesn't provide any evidence that the mask mandate stabilized the numbers. Because if you look at the actual case counts and such, uh, they seem to be kind of divorced from the mask mandate okay seems to just be doing what it's doing not sure you can actually tie the mask mandate to a decrease in cases because if that's the case i could tie uh the ending of all of the mass gatherings and protests i could say that's actually more attributable to the decline in cases now just last week we added a curfew on alcohol sales to keep restaurants from turning into bars which are high transmission areas right Yay us. We limited the bars. And this actually leads to what I think may be uh, the toughest question I have heard from the Capitol Press Corps in a long time. It came from Paul Wolverton of the Fayetteville Observer. Uh, thank you, Governor. It's Paul Wolverton with the Fayetteville Observer. Uh, on Sunday, two of my brothers and I went to a craft beer brewery, and it required masks and social distancing. And the atmosphere there was like having a drink at one of the private clubs that are closed. And the only meaningful difference seemed to be that the beer is made on site instead of being shipped in on a truck. And the The restaurant bars are pretty much the same thing. So if a bar atmosphere is conducive to spreading COVID, why aren't you putting the hammer down on the craft beer brew pubs and the restaurant bars beyond your 11 p.m. curfew? Or if the restaurants and brew pubs are handling the health rules effectively, why not allow the private clubs and other places to open with safety restrictions? Right. So the question is pretty simple. It's about a consistent application of standards. I've been beating this drum for months now. There is a difference in that these were made, uh, the products are made on site and in addition the small number of those uh, craft breweries and wineries presented a strong plan of public safety to the department of health and human services to the so you hear what he says there the reason why is because they make their beer on site see covid knows that if you make the beer on site that's virtuous and it won't smite you it won't spread but if you ship the beer in comes in on a truck it smites you down smitily. The point that the experts believed that that would work. Uh, we have seen what has happened in other states when bars have been opened. Uh, Again with the other states. Texas said that in all of his reopening, the thing that he regrets the most was reopening bars. We know that these are high transmission uh, areas, and that's why that they have remained closed. And one of the reasons we did put the alcohol uh, 
curfew in place at 11 o'clock is because we were getting information about restaurants turning into bars after hours. Uh, the, the idea here is to slow the spread of the virus. Yeah, we're, we're all clear sure on that. that. We drive down these numbers, and that's what we're going to continue to do. All right. So, next question, please. He doesn't answer the question. You're not. That's not. You're not mistaken. He does not answer that question. Now, if you have a question about where to get a mattress, I have your answer. Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com is their website. Four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They ship nationwide. Let the sleep consultants help you find the right bed for you. Five-star local delivery service, a 120-day comfort guarantee. Right now, they've got their triple zero deal, which is zero down, zero interest for 24 months, and zero payments for 90 days. You can't really, you can't lose on that deal. Uh, also, they've got a queen gel memory foam mattress for $3.99. It's not just a memory foam it's the gel memory foam keeps you cool during these hot august nights free bedding bundle as well includes the sheets the protectors and the pillows with the purchase of select mattresses go to mattressmanstores.com mattressmanstores.com and experience the difference for yourself at mattressman buy local sleep better Joining me now is John Sanders. He is the Director of Regulatory Studies at the John Locke Foundation. Welcome back to the show, John. How are you? I'm doing great, Pete. Thanks for having me back. Certainly. So this has become sort of a ritual, uh, sitting around in the afternoon watching Governor Roy Cooper's press conferences and... uh, asking questions on Twitter that we don't ever get to ask the governor uh, and no reporters really ever get to ask the governor uh, and because those that get through don't ever seem interested in some of the things that we seem interested in. So uh, first off, what is your sort of general reaction to the governor's announcement that we are now going to stay in phase two for I think uh, was it the rest of our lives? I think that's what he said. Um, no, it's five more weeks, right through September 11th. What's your what was your reaction when you heard that? Were you expecting this? Yes, I was expecting it. Uh, I just don't think he wants to give up this power, honestly. Really, like that? that like this is some like he's drunk on power. It's not. You, you think this has moved beyond the science and data and facts? Oh, I think absolutely because he keeps changing the 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 reasons for doing what he's going what he's going to do. Uh, first, we we're supposed to, you know, start to see a downturn in these things, and then we see a downturn. And what does he say that uh, it wasn't enough? Um, we're we're still at a high level, even though everything's leveled off and and things are heading in the right direction. Um, and this isn't the first time that he's done that. I mean, people may remember all the way back in April when things were supposed to close. When, when, sorry, when things were finally supposed to start opening up at the end of April, April 29th, mm. um, if we I remember flatten those the curve, days. yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> we, um, in March, we did uh, the first uh, stay-at-home shutdown lockdown order to flatten the curve, and it was based on 30 days to to flatten the curve, and and he comes out and says, yes, we flattened the curve, but we haven't defeated the virus. So we've got to, we're going to move into this phase plan, but we are not going to start it just yet because we still need to stay locked down. Um, he's just changing, moving the goalposts on everybody, and the overall effect is no different. Yeah. Um, we, we're still, some businesses are closed. They have no idea when they're going to be reopened. They thought they were going to be reopening in May. Um, and, and others are half open. 
and that's not that much better. Uh, it's very difficult for restaurants to to continue if the best they can hope for is a half full room. But even they're in a better position than gyms and bars. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Some is better than nothing, but still. Right, but yeah, but maybe it's not. I, I I went to a brewery, which is not a bar, as the governor explained. A brewery, not a bar, completely different scene. I'm not exactly sure why he just said something about we have to wear masks. But other than that, I think they're, uh, I think they're pretty similar. And I was at a brewery uh, a couple of weeks back, and the bartender, I was asking him, you know, how how is business? You know, you got the plexiglass up and everything, and you got the spacing and the capacity limits, and how's business? And he flat out says, like, I'm not making any money here. Uh, I'd rather be home collecting unemployment. I was making more on unemployment than I am in a half full brewery, right? Like, so I, I do wonder, like, is it even better to be open rather than, than closed? Well, um, maybe for the individual bartender, it might not be as long as uh, there is a, a very generous unemployment check that they're waiting for. But that can't that can't last forever either. Um, what's better for the economy overall is for things to be open. Right. Um, and to trust people to do and to act in, in how they think is safe. Um, people, some people are not going to be going out, going out to eat as much or going out to, to bars or to other businesses as much just because they're worried about the virus. Uh, you're going to have a demand problem there. The problem is, is we're pre- precluding everybody else from making these kind of choices. So you highlighted a portion of this executive order uh, yesterday, one of the whereases, one of the many whereases, and I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to go pick it apart. Uh, Whereas, should there be an increase in the percentage of emergency department visits that are due to COVID-19-like illnesses, an increase in the daily number of lab-confirmed cases, an increase in the positive tests as a percent of total tests, or an increase in COVID-19-related hospitalizations that threaten the ability of the healthcare system to properly respond, or should the state's ability to conduct testing and tracing be compromised, it may be necessary to reinstate certain restrictions so as to protect the health, safety, and welfare of North Carolinians. So you found this passage in the in the order, and this raises a whole bunch of alarms for you, right? Um, so I guess we kind of go one at a time. So, uh, well, first, why why did this stand out, and what do you think that this sort of portends? Well, the reason that you are saying we're, we have to go at this one at a time is because this is all predicated on an or. Mm-hmm. Um, so any one of those things could, in the governor's mind, be reason to reinstate certain restrictions. I don't know what certain restrictions are, but if he's talking about stay at home again, that's extremely worrisome to me. Right. Or shuttering businesses that have been allowed to open. Maybe yes. closing all the restaurants down again, saying, "Yo, you got to go back to just curbside," and all, and that could be triggered by, uh, let's see, it says, you know, uh, an increase in the daily number of laboratory confirmed cases. That that's enough to reinstate certain restrictions. Why is that problematic? That's problematic because it's just daily cases. Cases are not infections. Uh, cases are found infections. There is an unknown number of infections out there at any moment in time. Um, more testing 
will produce more known infections or more cases of, of COVID that we know about. So the more testing we do, the better, because then we have a better grasp of, of the, the size of the amount of infections that we have in the state at any moment in time. However, if you are going to use the number of cases as a reason, if you, know, you, you add more testing, you get more cases, and then you use that to turn around and say, oh, things are getting worse, and therefore we've got to add more restrictions, I think that's that's wrong. I think it's, it's kind of weaponizing or, or punishing us for doing a good thing. Right. From so the I worry about that a lot. Yeah, from the very beginning, they were all about got to have more testing. And I was on board with that. I agree. Like, more testing so we can find out how prevalent it is. Because a lot of people were like, we, oh, we don't need more testing. That's not going to stop the spread. But no, it it doesn't stop the spread, but it, it can be used to help quarantine outbreaks, but also it can be used to understand what the risk is to everybody. Because if it's way more prevalent, then that means the risk, you know, that that case fatality rate and everything else, you know, drops and you have a more accurate idea of what you're looking at. Um, and so I was on board with more testing, but now it seems like every he starts every press conference with this, you know, the, the rattling off of the of the the data, although he, he cherry picks like only three stats. And one of them, the first one he always does is the number of cases. And like just looking at that alone, which is basically what he does, that's not terribly instructive for us at this point. I don't think. No, it's not for several reasons. Um, if you'll remember, uh, back in April, uh, six former health directors of of North Carolina came out and said, look, if you're not sick, don't go begging for a test. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're just feeling a little sick, unless you're just really, really sick and you're worried that you might have this, don't go because we don't have that many tests. Please don't waste the tests on what may end up being a cold. Uh, so at that time, there were few tests. They were definitely reserved for for people. So, you know, the number or the percentage of tests that were going to come back positive for, for COVID were going to be a lot higher. Um, from April, we added like 2.7 times more tests in May than we had in April. And then in June, we had 1.7 times more tests than we did in May. And in July, another 1.7 times more tests. The numbers kept going up. But what was also happening was that the percent positive of tests um, declined, and it's pretty much flatlined. Right now, it's about 6.5%, hovering around in the mid-6% level. John Sanders is the Director of Regulatory Studies at the John Locke Foundation. Uh, do you know how important your website is to your business, by the way? Now more than ever, you should have learned this with the COVID lockdowns, you need to turn up in search engine results, right? You want your site to look professional, you want it to be user-friendly, and you probably don't know how to do all of that. You know your business. You don't really know how to do the website stuff. So you know who does? My friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design. Great design can solve a lot of your site's problems. Professional services, corporate, small business, entrepreneurs. Schaefer Smith can help you with graphics, photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. He also does logos. He did my logo for the show. Go to SchaeferSmith.com. Get the most out of your website. That's SchaeferSmith.com. So the positive tests as a percent of total tests, I think, is an instructive 
statistic. I think we can get some uh, some good, valuable information out of that. But this is also one of the things that the governor cites, right? An increase in the positive tests as a percentage of the total tests. Um, he says this could be a reason, if you see an increase in that, it could be a reason to reinstate the certain restrictions uh, again. So what's what's wrong with that? It seems like uh, that would be that would be a valuable metric to base it on if you're getting, you know, a lot more tests, but now you're seeing the percent uh, the percentage of positives going up. What, what's wrong with that? Well, there's a strange way that the uh, Department of Health and Human Services is doing this number, percent positives. They have their own little subset of tests, not the whole cohort of tests that they get in a particular day, but I think it's the ones that are electronically submitted. And, and we hear it the John Locke Foundation have asked, and a lot of other people have, have tried to figure out how they're coming about it. But for example, yesterday, um, let me see if I can find the number, but yesterday it was basically of the announced tests, total tests and positives that they came in, came out for was 5.7%. Um, but the number, yes, mm-hmm. but the number that they, that they offered everybody was 9%. I don't, and this has been a consistent thing where they give a completely different number, almost always higher. Every now and then it'll be smaller, but it's almost always higher than the simple math of the announced tests and the announced new cases. Hmm. And there's no explanation as to why that's happening. Not that we've been given. Yeah. Well, you could just get on the phone and ask during one of the press conferences, <laughs> right? Like that's. <laughs> I know. They're so forthcoming. I don't know why we haven't tried that. Um, also, I think part of the limitation of that metric alone is that it's, it's okay, yes, you're doing way more testing, and yes, you're seeing positive tests as a percent of total tests, but positive tests doesn't mean that you're symptomatic, right? It doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't even mean that you may at that point still be contagious, as I understand it. So just because you have the positive, and these are lab confirmed tests, right? This isn't the over the internet diagnose you with COVID type of uh, a positive test. These are actual lab confirmed tests. So yeah, so I mean, like I, I think it's a valuable, it's more valuable than just the total case number, I think, because it puts the case number into some sort of perspective. Uh, The case number alone doesn't uh, offer any kind of context, whereas this does provide a little context. Anyway, so one of the other ones uh, is an increase in related hospitalizations that threaten the ability of the healthcare system to properly respond. And Cooper and Cohen, they keep hammering away at this example of the other states, right? Other states, they reopened too quickly and look at what happened to them and their hospitals were uh, pushed to the brink. And uh, I find that to be a little disingenuous because the, um, the hospitals are now taking more patients besides COVID patients, right? Whereas before they were only taking the COVID, they cleared, they cleared everybody out, canceled everybody's surgeries, right? And uh, so you had all these hospital beds, and then they're like, oh, we don't have enough patients <laughs> to fill the beds. So they started opening back up for other surgeries and, and other uses. And so they, they're they running at, at, at pretty high capacity right now, but that's because they have a lot of non-COVID patients, as I understand it. Yes, and and they're not running... It- they're not running at any level that's that's unusual for them in any other time period. Um, hospitals are businesses too, uh, so they're not going to be normally holding open half their beds. Uh, they're 
they're going to be putting them to use. So, but the, the number of hospitalizations, the beds in use, et cetera, the, it's not unusual what we're seeing. Um, so it's not like North Carolina is suddenly um, threatened. Furthermore, based on what was predicted back in late March, uh, where if we flattened the curve and did everything we were supposed to, hospitalizations would have, they said, peaked around 12,000. And we're looking at, what, a tenth of that, not even. Yeah. Yesterday's number, I think, was 11... 167. So uh, my, my guest is John Sanders. He is the director of regulatory studies at the John Locke Foundation. And uh, one of the other portions of this, uh, whereas this language in the executive order is that he, uh, the governor is threatening to reinstate restrictions, certain restrictions. He doesn't say which ones, but he, he could do it. He could totally do it if the state's ability to conduct testing and tracing is compromised. Do do you have any idea what that means? Because I don't. Uh, no, not right offhand. I I don't know what what the measure for compromised tracing and testing is. I don't know if this is in there to set up for future nagging. I, there have been some reports that people are resisting talking to the tracers, um, but but I really don't know what that means. I don't know how you would measure it. And it seems like a kind of an open-ended lever to possibly install a whole bunch of restrictions on people and confuse people about it. John Sanders is the director of regulatory studies at the John Locke Foundation. Now more than ever, you need old grouches in your life. Multiple, no, just one actually, the old grouch, military surplus in downtown Clyde. He's got an expanded line of first aid kits and medical supplies for all kinds of emergencies, from scrapes to gunshot wounds with step-by-step -step instructions that anybody can follow, even me. And uh, maybe avoid a trip to the hospital where you pick up the COVID. But uh, also, he's got body armor, all kinds. They're made to NATO specs. These are for in-store or over-the-phone purchases only. He also has face masks made locally by a disabled veteran family out of military parachutes. They are lightweight and soft and pretty cool, if I might say so. Uh, steel gas cans as well. These are the pre-banned old school cans, plus tons of real U.S. military surplus. For more than three decades, Old Grouch's military surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde. The shop is open Monday through Saturday. Yes, they are open across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. I think I asked you this the last time we spoke about a month ago, um, but so I'll ask again. What is the data, the specific metrics that you look at that you find to be the most valuable in trying to understand what the virus is doing and where it is? Well, I'm definitely interested in hospitalizations and deaths um, and case test percent positives. Those are the ones that I, I pay a lot of attention to. Um, I, I'm also very interested in the issue of recoveries, and I, I don't see much talk about this, but for example, two weeks ago, we hit over 100,000 new cases. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sorry, not new cases, 100,000 cases. Right. So our, our total case count went over 100,000, and every media outlet picked up that and blared it, you know. I mean, you know, it was a big data threshold. I can understand that. that, that. So I, I issued a challenge. I said, all right, in two weeks, 
which is when our recoveries should top 100,000. Will you please put that out there? <laughs> and they haven't done it. I'm shocked. You can't see my face over the radio, but this is right. my shocked face. <laughs> so that that's something that people don't really generally know. But about five out of six people in North Carolina have recovered from, I mean, in North Carolina, excuse me, of those who have had right. the virus in North Carolina have recovered from the virus. So, and in fact, the actual case numbers on any given day have been in decline in this state for the past two weeks. We've had more recoveries than new cases for the past two weeks. So the, the, the real threat level is lower than it was two weeks ago. Well, that's because the governor's mask mandate, right? Isn't he saved us <laughs> with the masks, right? Making us wear the masks. That's as I understand. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, we'll go, we'll go with that. But um, if I were to just show you a chart of our of our um, case, our, our our growth in cases, and say where was the mask mandate added, I doubt anyone could could pick it. You know, it's like pin the tail on a donkey. It just it would be a you know lucky guess. Yeah, because if I remember seeing the curve, because you you did a uh, you did a big study of the studies of masks, and uh, you reviewed what they were looking at. It's one of the things as I was reading through your piece, and it's at the uh, johnlock.org. dot uh, org. Uh, the title is uh, so, uh, that the governor's administration is offering unconvincing. Uh, an unconvincing case for requiring masks. And as I'm reading through your review of these studies, um, I, I keep coming back to this fact that he never talks about the actual science. Have you noticed that? Like, he, he'll say science, and he'll say the science tells us to wear masks. But there's never, even when he has his health and human services secretary with him, right, which is always, right, they never explore the actual science they never say here's this study that we're using and this study found xyz and that's why we're saying we need to do this policy he never discusses that it's always just an edict right it's always just the order right it, it's funny that they come out and say science and data and it's supposed to be like a jedi hand wave in front of the, the media oh science and data say um i, I don't know um, well, it works. But I mean, honestly, like, it, it I does, can't blame it them for doing it because it has worked <laughs> up until this point, right? They just say it, and media repeats it. And they're like, oh, it's the science and data and facts. Oh, my. It, that's all. So right. it must be true. <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, oh, yeah, okay. So that explains why the virus won't mess with you if you're having a drink at a restaurant at 1059. But if you get one at 1101, <laughs> you are in danger, buddy. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, so, yeah, I went through... Um, Mandy Cohen, the Health and Human Services Secretary, went before the North Carolina House Health Committee a week before they they announced the mask mandate. And she had a chart that listed results from three studies. Um, and these were all, you know, amazing, incredible results. Um, and so I, I wanted to look at the studies and see what they were. If we are going to issue a dress code across the entire state based on this, I would like to know what it say, uh, what they say. So I looked at, there were three different studies. Um, one of them compared 
outcomes in uh, notorious virus um, epidemic sites, uh, New York City and Italy, compared with Wuhan, China. Uh, the difference that the researchers found was that uh, Wuhan implemented mask orders along with everything else, and that was the only difference between what Italy and New York City did. So then they looked at what happened in Italy and New York City after they implemented the mask mandate, and they said, oh, you know, they, they Italy was like 78,000 new cases, or I forget which one was 78,000, but anyway, you know, it, was, it created this massive difference um, in and cut all of these cases. The problem is the mask mandates were dropped on the backside of the spike curve. If you remember from the hospitalizations and the, you know, we want to flatten the curve, it was we wanted to avoid the kind of curve that Italy and New York City were having, which is a massive spike, which we were afraid would overwhelm hospitals. But on the backside of it is a massive fall off. Right. So if as happened in Italy and New York City, you drop the, ma the mask mandate on the massive fall-off, you can't really tell what's the difference. Where's the natural progression of cases falling and what could be attributed to the masks? So I didn't think that that was very relevant to North Carolina's situation because we did not have that kind of spike. Yeah. So, right. So for, for the visual, if you think of it, it looks like a mountain, right? It's just a, it's a, it's an upside down V, right? It goes up and yeah. then goes down, right? These massive spikes in New York city that everybody saw the chart and their mask mandate happens on sort of the right side, the downslope of those case numbers. So after basically after everybody's already gotten infected and died, right? That's when they put the mandate in place. And then they're going to claim that everything past that point is uh that there was that there that the, it should have been higher but because the 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 drop off was so low they take basically take the difference right and they're just they're just guessing that we totally would have had uh the same number like i guess that spike would have just been a plateau it would not have dropped without their mask mandate but that's not proven you can't prove that just by looking at at that graph right i mean that's just it, it's kind of silly yeah i don't yeah, I don't think it, it really helps the case, and it's more, you know, for my interest, it's not really relevant to North Carolina, because mm -hmm. that's not where we were. Um, the second one... What do you mean? Hang on. So what do you mean uh, that wasn't where we were? We weren't in that kind of, you know, I mean, we weren't in that kind of epidemic spike. Gotcha. Right, so our, yeah, cause um, our curve was right. a lot, yeah, it was a lot more of a gradual sloping dare I say a we, flattened curve. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had flattened the curve as, uh, as the governor had announced as, as early as April 23rd, we flattened the curve. So flattening the curve meant that we would see more cases gradually. Um, but it wouldn't be a spike. Right. We're talking with John Sanders and uh, more with him in a minute. First, if you're trying to prevent a spike or outbreak, uh, in your business, then what you need is to go down to General Equipment Rental in Weaverville and get yourself the Karcher Misting System with Vital Oxide Disinfectant, all right? Uh, this is all you need. This thing is, it's like the size of a shop vac. It has a wand and it's cordless. It's on four independent wheels. You just basically roll it all around and it sanitizes everything. This Vital Oxide Disinfectant, it is safe for kids and pets and food contact surfaces. Uh, so that means 
countertops, cookware, appliances, dishware, right? Uh, so you don't even have to rinse it afterwards. You just spray everything. It's non-toxic. It's hypoallergenic. It's odorless. It's colorless. It's 100% biodegradable. Um, also, it is an all-in-one, hospital-grade, EPA-approved, germicidal disinfectant, sanitizer, and deodorizer. I know there's like nothing this thing can't do, right? It kills 99.9% of infection-causing bacteria and viruses, including the coronavirus, as well as like all of the others like E. coli and MRSA and norovirus and H1N1 and influenza B. It also gets rid of mold, mildew, and fungi. Uh, so if you got a fungi at your place and you don't want them around anymore, okay, I'm sorry. I mean, come on, that I had to make that reference. The Karcher Mister at General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, family-owned and operated for three generations, meeting all of your equipment rental needs, okay? They're also your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. Uh, they do uh, equipment service and repair as well. Go to generalrents.com, generalrents.com, and then if you go to generalrents.com forward slash Pete, you will get a coupon for two free cloth face coverings. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com, and think outside your toolbox. For folks wondering, like, why are you talking about this? And I'm talking with John Sanders. He's the Director of Regulatory Studies at the John Locke Foundation. And uh, we're talking about this because these were the studies that Mandy Cohen used to convince everybody that this is the science that we're relying on to do the mask mandate. And so the first study was this one of Italy and New York City. The second is out of Germany, right? What was this German study and, and why? Uh, how, what's its relevance? All right, so the second study looks at municipal regions in Germany. So like, you know, like the surrounding Charlotte area or, or Raleigh and the surrounding Triangle, that, that kind of thing. Um, and there was one, I and I'm going to butcher these names, so... I may avoid using them. Yeah, just uh, say one city. It looks city. like Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like Jenna. It may be pronounced something different. Forgive me if I get it wrong. Um, but the region of Jenna was the first one to mandate mask wearing. And the, and the researchers compared Jenna with other municipal regions in Germany that also early moved to to mandate face masks before the entire country did. And what they did was they set up a, a, a composite Jenna for their differences study, you know. So here's what Jenna would look like if they didn't mandate masks, and here's what Jenna did after mandating masks, and they found tremendous results, like 40% um, difference between their composite and the actual and then for the other cities they found much lower results which they attributed to they learned from jenna and this is <laughs> and this is good for our results because either way it means the mask work um and so everybody picked up and learned from jenna and that's why it wasn't showing up in our numbers was they were already doing the mask before the mandate. Right. They so they, they saw very Jenna well could be the case. Yeah, they saw Jenna do it and they were like, Oh, if they're doing it, we should probably do it even though there's no mandate. So the people started wearing the masks and so when they got around to issuing the mask mandates in these other places, Nordhausen I think was one and Maine Kinzig was another. And when they did those 
then uh, there wasn't that much of an improvement in the spread or infections because they had already because basically they self mandated right that was the that that's right. how they explain People away the voluntarily difference. Voluntarily did it. Uh, so. What I thought was very interesting in that study was Appendix C points out that there were three other, four other cities that they um, were, were looking at to do a composite case the way they did with Jenna that were very early movers on masks as well. And they abandoned this kind of comparison. Um, two of those cities showed positive effects of uh, cutting case numbers. Um, from wearing the masks. Mm -hmm. One of them, they couldn't really find. It was unclear if there was any effect whatsoever. And one of them, they said, looks like the mask may have caused more cases <laughs> to come about. <laughs> Which makes you wonder, did the masks have actually any role at all? Right? If the data is... like. Like I keep coming back to the and I, I, I it's not my original thought. I see people and they say this stuff and I don't know if it's true. That's one like I fully acknowledge I do not know what's true with a lot of this stuff. Right. And I just keep coming back to this idea though that this thing is a virus and viruses are gonna virus. And this is what it's doing. And there is only so much that we can do to try and stop it and we're 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 oh well, I'm going to pass this policy. I'm going to lock down this you know business or this industry, and we're saying aha, see it worked. But you're you're not actually knowing that it worked. You just did something, and then you saw some numbers change, and then you believe that there's a correlation there, and there may not be. But everybody seems like willing to go along with this idea for some reason that they do know. Right. It it should be pointed out that um, the German study. The uh, the authors point out at the very beginning, you have to call this a provisional study. Um, I think the others have been have been more peer reviewed, but these are all emerging studies in the midst of the virus. Right. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, so we and the issue to me is we're issuing a statewide edict, altering people's behavior based on this. It needs to be really doggone solid. Uh, so, so for for this study, I don't find it that impressive and applicable to North Carolina for for two reasons. Um, one being, you know, they they kind of discount uh, that some of these other cities didn't do what Jenna did, um, but North Carolina was not anywhere close to being a first mover in mandating masks so there's no there's no reason for us to expect what mandy cohen put out in front of the, the house health committee which was their big 40 percent finding there's no reason at all to expect that kind of that, that kind of result the other thing is these are municipal regions this is not a large diverse state of urban and rural um beach mountain like north carolina uh, so I, I just don't think it's very applicable. All right. And then the third study that you looked at was a study of what, like uh, more than a dozen U.S. states. Okay. So this looks more uh, uh, applicable, right? This looks more uh, relevant to us. Yeah. I mean, it's 15 states in D.C. that were the, the first to implement uh, face mask mandates. And, you know, like you said, I mean, it, in my in my business, it's very reasonable to 
to look at different states and see if they're having different results from policies. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, they're very comparable units to North Carolina, um, just from the face of it. So of the three, this is the one I was most interested in. It was also the one that had the, the least blaring big-time results. They, were, they saw modest, um, modest cuts in the number of cases, modest reductions in, in case numbers um, that, that would grow slightly over time. So to me, it seemed more reasonable. But then I, I looked into it a little bit more, uh, and the authors talk about this being a natural experiment, which it would. But what I thought was strange, and I didn't put this in there, is, is um, they do sort of like what the authors of the German study did, which is compare a state's numbers against a comp uh, what the state's numbers would be according to their model if they had not implemented the mass mandate. So they went five days before and created their baseline rate, which would have assumed a linearity. Yeah. Of, um, and, you know, you don't get linearity when you're looking at a, at a virus curve. Um, but again, it's not comparing with the other states. That's the natural experiment. <laughs> to me, uh, it's, not, it's not saying, okay, Kentucky did this, and Kentucky might have looked different uh, without it, here's our model for what Kentucky we looked at. And let's look at the difference between Kentucky's actual numbers and Kentucky's model numbers. And now we're going to say we saw one and a half percent reduction over the first five days. I don't, I don't know how you come about that. But still, it, I wanted to look and see what these states' curves looked like compared with North Carolina and D.C.'s um, and when they implemented their mask mandate. And so I, I, I got all those graphs, and then I put the mass man, mandate on those graphs. I looked at those charts. It didn't seem like there was any pattern that I could detect. I couldn't see it either. There were some states that the mass mandate appears like right before or at the very top of their curve. And then those would be the ones where you, say, you would say, well, it looks like it worked. I mean, this is exactly what's advertised, right? This, um, but there were some that were put well after, like in Italy and New York City um, in the previous study. There were some that, that the mass mandate happened well after the spike. Um, and many of these had that epidemic spike curve as opposed to the, the more flattened curve. Some were put well before anything and just have seen a gradual increase in cases over time. These tended to be the smaller states. Um, the two that seem to be the most relevant to North Carolina also happen to be states that are now suffering a second wave, mm -hmm. an obvious second wave in, the, in their case numbers, which is occurring with a mask mandate. With a mask mandate, yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's, again, I keep coming back to this idea that maybe this, maybe none of this stuff really matters very much. Maybe it's just it's mutated so much um that that the things that we think are working might not actually have any impact whatsoever and we're just it's like the what is it the you know the the remote 
village of people that had never had any human interaction and then you know somebody they, they arrive and they build a uh, a landing strip or whatever and they start landing planes and bringing stuff and so they just keep building more landing strips thinking that the gods are giving them more planes you know with food and 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 supplies and i don't know it's just i i, I do wonder <laughs> if like that if we're the villagers in that situation right? <laughs> um we're thinking that oh we just build another landing strip and that's it another policy and what's really disturbing and you make note of this as well is that these decisions are not being made by uh, by a um, a public body. It's one person. It's the governor. Now he claims to have health experts guiding him on these things, but he doesn't tell us who they are. I, I'm not aware of of who he surrounds himself with to get this kind of advice. Uh, and and you know, are people raising questions about models and uh, these conclusions that are drawn, or is it just him and Mandy Cohen? Like I, I don't. I don't know that. And he's definitely not running it past all of the other elected council of state members. So yeah, like this is a lot of power for this one guy. And it seems like our media is like uninterested in finding out any of that background as to how these decisions are being arrived at. Uh, I'll, I'll let you get the last word here. Well, you hit it on, on the head. Then that's my, my biggest concern about this is that uh, a bad process is being used these things are being done, it looks to me, in facially illegally against the State Emergency Management Act uh, because, like you said, the Council of State should have a say in this, and they, and they don't. Um, what I would like to see and what I think is the reasonable thing for the governor to do is, I mean, he's got the bully pulpit. He, he has got respect given to his, his position. He should be able to come out and make a case for voluntary compliance for these things, and then trust North Carolinians to do what, what they think is right. Uh, the situation is much different in the rural parts of the of the state than they are in in Wake County and in, in the middle of Raleigh or in Charlotte. Uh, so let people act as they see um, their, their health may be affected. Instead of forcing these one-size-fits-all policies maybe against state law certainly seems to me to seems that way to me um and trust people instead of trying to rule them john sanders is the director of regulatory studies at the john locke foundation john thanks so much for your time today i appreciate you spending so much of it with me thanks so much pete it's always a pleasure you know it's also a pleasure looking at the wall art that stacy redmond produces Red Rock Photography, redrockphotonc.com. If you have not seen any of his work yet, please do yourself a favor. Go to redrockphotonc.com and just look. Blue Ridge Mountains, beauty. Okay, so stunning, you're not going to be able to look away. You're just going to get lost in these photos. He is from Western North Carolina. He's been shooting landscapes for two decades, and he shoots what he sees. People ask him, like, oh, well, did you do something to this? Like, no, he just, he knows where the sun rises and sets along every, like, mile marker on the Blue Ridge Parkway. He knows where all of these places are, and he camps out at them. He goes up to them and takes, I don't even know, probably millions of photos to get the right shot. His work is brilliant, it is striking, and it's affordable for any space. See for yourself at redrockphotonc.com and use the promo code PETE for 20% off. Redrockphotonc.com One of the things that has never been mentioned by the governor, among the many things that he has never mentioned, is 
uh, what I think could actually be a really good uh, uh, fourth W for their three W's. You could do a fourth W, and that would be Windows. The fourth W is Windows. Yeah. So COVID-19 and the history of ventilation in the United States. This is a piece at Bloomberg by a guy named Stephen Mim. He says, living and working in spaces that are largely sealed off from the outdoors might actually exacerbate the coronavirus. And then he goes through some of the history of this. In the 19th century, a growing number of people lived and worked in cramped, airless quarters in the nation's cities. As disease ran rampant, the solution was simple, better ventilation. So a growing number of medical professionals began prescribing natural disinfectants, fresh air and sunshine to counter the threat of disease. In his book in 1882, it's called How We Ought to Live. A doctor named Joseph Edwards argued for outsized windows and doors inside of homes, claiming that the larger you make your openings, the nearer your house will approach a tent. Uh, he wanted, like, basically, you know, the closest you can live to being outdoors, you should do so. They also discovered that during the Civil War, doctors noticed that wounded soldiers that were treated in open air settings had higher rates of survival than those who were in cramped hospitals. There was another reason, by the way, for this obsession with fresh air, uh, the continuing threat of tuberculosis. Though it had declined somewhat by the turn of the century, the respiratory disease remained the third most common cause of death after heart disease and influenza. And so in the early 20th century, like patients began sleeping with their bodies cantilevered on beds sticking out of windows. Many of those afflicted with TB left the cities for sanitariums. Does any of this sound familiar? It should for folks in the mountains. Drove a lot of the economy and development in this part of the uh, state for a very long time. So then along came air conditioning and everybody went back indoors. And maybe that's part of the problem, right? That could be part of the problem. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast and give it a positive review. I appreciate that. Maybe become a patron of the program. You get cool stuff and exclusive content. Thanks so much for the support. I appreciate it. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.